0: Has Russia stepped up the chances of war in Europe? And what about the Middle East on fire? Lord Richard says that's the priority.
1: I think the Islamic State and other Muslim extremist organisations are the most dangerous threat uh, the world faces.
0: Plus, HMS Bulwarks off to the Med while Lusty pays off. But who will buy her? The war in Ukraine has stepped up a gear this week. Washington is reporting that Moscow is directing a new offensive by pro-Russian separatists in the southeast of the country. According to an unnamed NATO source, well over a thousand Russian troops are operating inside Ukraine. Well, I'm joined today by Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute in Whitehall, as well as our own defense analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to you both. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, to start with you, has Russia sent troops into Ukraine, do you think?
2: Yes, it has uh, these troops don 't seem to have any badges on, and the, uh, Mr. Putin and his administration are saying that these people have uh, resigned from the uh, the army and they 're just volunteers, but that that doesn 't uh, take anybody in and There are two things one is is that Russia is trying to prevent the uh, the crushing of the separatists, particularly in, in Donetsk, and there may be some reverses taking place now uh, in favour of the separatists because of the help they're getting. And secondly, I mean, direct your attention to the to the southeast of the country, the map, the Kerch Strait between Russia and Crimea. It's a very small strait, um, but Russia needs to open a land route to Crimea, and it looks as if they're pushing to create a land route from the the west of Russia. To the eastern part of of Crimea, in order to supply Crimea, now a new a new part of the Russian Federation, um, properly. Um, this is not something that President Putin particularly wants to do, but I suspect that he took a decision two or maybe three weeks ago now that if he didn 't intervene more decisively, that the separatists would be crushed, and he wasn 't prepared to let that happen and so he 's partly used the, um, the the crisis in the middle East the fact that it 's holiday time in the in the West in good old Soviet fashion to create some decisive moves when the West is, its attention is elsewhere, and we're partly on the wrong foot.
0: So, Christopher, the incursion in the southeast of the country, is it an invasion?
3: It's an invasion if it is organised, other than, for example, if these people are volunteers, as as President Putin seems to think they are, or wants us to think they are, then that's international or questionable. But if they're coming from Russian units, and they can be identified in Russian units, that is at the very least an incursion. And it's a word that is used in the West quite a lot and was used right since 1979 when the Russians went into Afghanistan. as an incursion rather than an invasion. Where these people are going is interesting. They're heading for um, Novozovsk, which is on the Azov Sea, which is very important. And part of them is spread out. The her- uh, heading down to Mariupol, which is the port there. Um, what this does, and it's very important, it perhaps relieves the, or, or drags back the forces from Kiev, the Ukrainian forces, um, that are, that have, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk under siege. And that is a way of doing it to open up effectively, sort of World War I terms almost, a, a second, a, a second front.
0: Uh, Professor Michael Clark, NATO summit next week in Wales, obviously, this will be on the agenda. What militarily can the member countries achieve?
2: Well, there are two things they'll be looking to achieve. One is to make all the usual reassertions of Article 5 and to reassure the the, allies. This being to protect
0: member allies.
2: Yes, that that an attack on one is an attack on all, and that now NATO is a 28-nation organisation instead of a a 16-nation organisation as it used to be, so it has lots of new members, and so one requirement will be to make it clear that NATO is still a a functioning military alliance. But the second task is a more difficult one, which is to try to to, to devise strategies which NATO can adopt Against subversion, because the threat to NATO is not a, a land invasion of NATO territory, although that cannot be ruled out. But it's certainly not in not likely in the foreseeable future. Um, but but a subversive threat.
0: Meaning threat, meaning what exactly?
2: Well, the sort of thing that we've seen in Ukraine. So the use of of minorities, the use of of pseudo legal arguments, and then. Uh, individuals who claim to be volunteers, uh, agents provocateurs operating in NATO countries. And it's that subversive threat, particularly in the Baltic states, who are very worried about this. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland is also worried in a different way. So, mm. what NATO's got to try to do is to devise a, a, a new type of military response, which is not overt military which uses all arms of government to counter a subversive threat.
0: And Christopher, talking about the kind of statements ahead of this uh, summit next week by the NATO Secretary General Agnes fauras he's been talking about, about new bases in Eastern Europe.
3: Yes, I mean, the, the, those bases, the idea of those bases have been, has been sussed up by, uh, by the Supreme Allied Commander Europe already. Uh, he, sent, he sent a three-star general and a team down, for example, to Croatia, and said this is a pla- is this a place we could set up a, a forward operating base. So when Ramsamanson says, Well look, we're going to um, we're going to set up new systems or new units, he's absolutely right but then they've already thought that one through. The other thing is interesting because with a with NATO conference next week there are sort of 28 members of NATO then there are 30 or 39 members who, who are not in NATO but are, are assigned to NATO or, 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 or bring on with NATO um, that is an interesting time for Putin to do this because NATO will have no consensus because above all NATO is a political alliance and there is the weakness in NATO and Putin Putin knows this with
0: with Kate you. still to come NATO gathers but does anybody care and it's all over for illustrious BFBS sitrep. The latest news from Ukraine should not divert from the military upheavals all taking place within a few hundred miles of each other. Syria, Iraq, Libya, Gaza. The man who had his desk piled high with sit reps on this seemingly continuing security problem was, until recently, Chief of the Defence Staff General Lord Richards. He's been talking to BFBS reporter Rob Olver.
1: I think the Islamic State and other Muslim extremist organisations are the most dangerous threat uh, the world faces, and I'm including in that definition of the world a lot of very fine Muslim states Uh, So this isn't a a Western versus Eastern or Christian versus Muslim issue. Uh, This is the vast, vast majority of the people on this planet uh, who are decent people, who don't want to live under the sort of tyranny that the Islamic State offers. So we do have to deal with it, and I know Marty Dempsey very well, and I heard him the other day, and I thought he summarised the requirements of how to deal with it extremely well.
3: Lord Dannett has also said that we should obviously deal with this, but in order to do so uh, we have to join forces with President Assad.
1: Well, I think what we're all saying um, and I think everybody's saying this, we haven't yet got it, is that we need a very comprehensive multi-dimensional strategy uh, involving all sorts of people. My own view is it's not necessary to ally ourselves in some formal sense uh, with President Assad. Um, we may have to work inadvertently in some way with him, um, but I don't think we need to ally ourselves. And I, I think General Dannett was saying that when he said it could be uh, under the counter or over the counter. It didn't really matter. But there may be some short-term Uh, marriage of convenience that we tacitly uh, have to agree to but more importantly is that states generally need to come together to deal with this scourge Uh, it worries me that Russia who has a huge uh, identity of interest with us in dealing uh, with uh, militant and extremist Muslim organisations is currently not with us because of what's happening in Ukraine I think we need to uh, resolve that issue as soon as we can um, so that Russia China, uh, many of the Arab states, obviously Europe and America, Canada, uh, all of us need to come together to devise um, and then implement, and it will take a generation as... Uh, Prime Minister Cameron and others said to devise a proper comprehensive strategy that will deal with this thing once and for all and at the moment we're not doing that well enough, individual countries are doing a bit of this and a bit of that, uh, what we need is real statesmen now to come forward real leaders, a spirit of close cooperation, the sort of close cooperation that as we celebrate NATO's um, long success shortly in Wales, that those people back in 1947 1947- 48, 49 had when seeking to confront the Soviet Union who had very uh, expansionist uh, policies. I want to see that sort of vision and leadership and I think if we get them together and nations get together then there is a strategy out there that will deal with it and deal with it comprehensively.
3: You came up uh, I understand with a plan uh, a couple of years ago it went while oh, yeah. the Chief of the, the Defence Staff to arm and train uh, civilian uh, uh, Syrian rebels Um, Do you think that we would face this situation now had that plan been enacted?
1: I'm bound to say no. Um, The whole point of what I suggested back in 2011 and 2012 was to nip this um what has become islamic state in the bud there were some very very good uh, opposition groups uh in syria that were crying out for help um there was already a risk that there were too many extremists uh in uh, not necessarily their ranks but within syria and we had to be very careful but if, and I haven't, I don't think we want to rehearse the, the detail of it, but if we had done what uh, I had proposed then, my own view is that although it would have taken a year it was actually outpacing the ability of what's become Islamic state to do what it's now become uh, we didn't take that opportunity, I understood it was asking a lot of people, but it was a proper strategy, uh, well thought through, but sadly uh, nations, and it was not just ours by any uh, stretch of the imagination, uh, Thought it was too much and hope uh, that it would go away. Well, that hasn't happened. And I, I, I just wish that people had listened. Maybe I didn't explain it very well, too. I don't know. But either way, we're now where we are, and we've got to have the sort of vision I was trying to expound back then writ large in the way I've just suggested but actually the plan I came up with then is not a bad basis for the comprehensive strategy uh, that uh, we now need to devise and implement in respect of ISIS generally.
0: The former Chief of Defence Staff General Lord Richards talking to our reporter Rob Olver. Well still with us is Professor Michael Clark from the Royal United Services Institute and Christopher Lee here in the studio. Uh, Professor Clark, he was talking very much there about strategy about a comprehensive strategy to deal with the current problems from Islamic State, what what do you think he means by that?
2: I think what he means is that this is a, a unique type of problem that we're facing because the IS people, the Islamic State people, are illegal on just about every ground you can think of. They, you know, they're terrorists, they're genocidal, they're completely illegal in international law and they seem to glory in it. <clears throat> and so whatever else is going on in the Middle East, this is a symptom of the fact that the Middle East, the Levant in particular, is melting down from, uh, from, from the Mediterranean through Lebanon right through to the Gulf. The Middle East is in a state of internal civil war. It's essentially a civil war between Sunni and Shia and this is one of the symptoms of it. The IS phenomenon is one of the, one of the symptoms. And when generals talk strategy in this way, they also have on their minds other things as well. Because while we have this particular problem, there is also the issue of Ukraine that we we're just discussing in Europe, the change in the rules of European, um, uh, European systems. And we, there's, a, there's a threat growing out there to the United Kingdom in terms of terrorism. What's happening in the Middle East will come back to haunt us in various ways. We're not entirely sure what, what yet. But the ripples, there will be a blowback from it. And the security services are very worried about it because it's a new phenomenon of terrorism and it's coming our way.
0: Christopher, uh, President Barack Obama has talked about a, co- co- a co- cooperation of the willing, a coalition of the willing. Um, what can the countries that are willing actually do about this? Well,
3: there's a question of, uh, in fact, how many countries are willing indeed, and in fact have got the political clout at home to support what their leaders perhaps might want to do. I mean, there you have the general talking, saying this is the time for real statemen, statesmen, real leaders. Um, and in, in, in the military mind, that's the most important, because generals don't go to war, they are sent to war, you see. And, and that is the problem. This is the sort of problem that is facing NATO at the moment. But you see, also, when we think about strategy, what have you got to use for your strategy. In some ways, and I, I think this is right, the British uh, basis for that strategy, the sort of strategy that uh, General Richards was involved with right at the beginning is Army 2020. And so you have it in three tranches, really. You have a reaction uh, uh, organisation, you have a follow-on force, and then you have the reserves, etc., uh, doing all the other jobs. So you've got the basis of something you can say, look, we can build it, and if necessary, we then identify it, then you throw it to the politicians, and you say, look, if you want us to do anything about it, that's what we can do. But you cannot guarantee that 28 nations in NATO has got that, nor have they got the political backing Uh, to to, to, to actually operate And and on
0: that point, the UK has constitutional restrictions.
3: Yeah, for example, if you wanted to put boots into Syria as an example, a stream example. Parliament has already voted on this and said, no, we don't go into Syria. So when uh, uh, President Obama says to uh, David Cameron again, probably at the NATO summit next week, how you fix for the coalition of the willing... Uh, David Cameron has to say to him, well, if you're talking uh, Syria, which you probably wouldn't be, but if you're talking Syria, we actually have to go to Parliament mm. um, because we've all, Parliament's already taken a decision. We have to go and get permission once again. That is the complexity. It isn't some guy sitting in an operational command post and saying, let's go.
0: What do you think, uh, Professor Michael Clark, about what uh, General Lord Richards said about if you'd listened to me and armed the rebels, none of this would have happened in this way?
2: Well, <coughs>
0: To paraphrase re- what he said.
2: Yes, it's a reasonable position. I mean, I've, I've asked myself this question. If that, that plan that him and David Petraeus talked about and drew up to train people in Jordan uh, to work with the opposition, they put it to Obama and to Hillary Clinton put it to Obama. Obama wouldn't go along with it, so the plan went nowhere. If that plan had been implemented, then probably, at the, at the very best, we would have only had 10% of the problems that we now have. Uh, at the very best, 10% say. But we now, if that were the case, we'd still be asking ourselves, why is the West involved? That 10% would seem enormous. And it is the case that we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. I think David Richards is right. I mean, if we had been able to intervene decisively in the Syria crisis um, in that first six or eight months, after which time we couldn't do anything useful. But if we had been able to do something at that time, then a lot of other things would have been forestalled. But, we would have owned the Syria problem and it would have been like Iraq and we'd have, been, we'd have been beating ourselves up. Why are we involved in Syria? Why did we let the Arabs sort it out themselves? The fact is, uh, there's no easy options in this case.
0: Well, when politicians hear the word strategy from generals, they have nightmares about boots on the ground. But often what seems a routine deployment can turn into a mission creep or, in this place, mission drift, because this week HMS Bulwark sailed for the Mediterranean to take part in Exercise Cougar 14. It's a multinational amphibious exercise which includes France, Greece and the United States. Rebecca Ricks has spoken to the ship's commanding officer, Captain Dean Bassett.
4: HMS Bulwark is part of the Response Force Task Group and and to be able to routinely operate as a very high readiness unit you need to make sure that you can integrate with fellow navies throughout the world so just exercising in the UK achieves a certain amount, but actually if you, if you want to go and work with navies you're likely to work with during contingent operations, you need to deploy where those navies are. So, for example, in the Mediterranean, we'll be operating with the French, uh, the Greek navy, the Albanians, and when we're in the Middle East, we'll be operating with a number of regional partners, uh, but also the Americans and
0: the French as well. And as you say, high readiness in years gone by, the deployment has been used to go and help in other countries. Again, you'll be ready to do that this year?
4: Exactly, and one of the key features about the Cougar 14 deployment is, is having elements of high readiness forward deployed. So for example, last year, um, with the uh, operation Philippines, um, we were able to deploy a HMS Illustrious at short notice to go and help the inhabitants of, of the Philippine Islands, whereas actually if we tried to do that from the UK, it would have taken us a number of weeks more. So it's all about having the units forward deployed, ready for continued operations.
0: And what does it take to keep a ship like this at sea for so long?
4: A lot of food, a reasonable amount of fuel, um, and actually keeping people occupied. Um, It's making The the routine, day-to-day routine, can become a bit mundane. So it's making sure that everybody's actually um, working hard, but also having a little bit of fun as well. So throwing in a few port visits here and there, just so they can have a little bit of downtime, so they're ready for the next exercise, the next operation.
0: And when are you due back?
4: Uh, due back just for Christmas um, but as we always uh, say we plan on, on a date to get back to the UK but we make sure the ship's companies and more importantly actually our families uh, are ready for the potential uh, that we may come back later and again if you look at HMS Illustrious last year that's a classic example
0: That was Captain Dean Bassett talking to Rebecca Ricks on HMS Bulwark uh, Professor Michael Clark, um so it's off on Exercise Cougar 14 in the Mediterranean what could it possibly get involved in other than that do you think?
2: Oh well, it, the the fact is, the Eastern Mediterranean is a very volatile place. So uh, these exercises are useful in their own right. But having a presence uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean of a, a ship like this, Bulwark is a um, a, a landing craft, uh, it's, a, it's a amphibious assault ship. It can take a lot of marines. It takes landing craft. Um, it is useful to have it there. And it's it, it is to put it crudely, it's a big ship, and big ships do actually attract attention. So I think it's it's a reassurance measure as well as everything else,
3: Christopher. Got to remember. Um, HMS Liverpool, was it, Michael? Um, down in yes. the Mediterranean, nothing to do with us. They said, what's going on in Libya? <laughs> Next thing, <laughs> HMS Liverpool standing off <laughs> doing all the things that it should have been doing. You don't put a ship down on a cruise you put a ship down with an operational capability and anybody who, I know anybody who reads the daily paper will know exactly what that operational capability is and when you look at the geography of what we're talking about it's the sort of thing that you can support and you can support other operations that are going on there
0: Mm. Let's return now to this NATO summit in Newport in Wales next week Uh, Professor Michael Clark. what do you think will be signed up to if anything next week?
2: Well, they've got quite a long agenda, in theory, uh, dealing with um, keeping ISAF cooperation alive post-Afghanistan. I mean, there was very useful things done in the in the whole ISAF arrangement with non-NATO partners, so keeping that alive. Um, dealing with uh, non-proliferation and uh, ballistic missile defense, thinking about maritime security, there are quite a lot of, of, of items on that sort of agenda. But of course, the only real item on the agenda is, will NATO make this a fresh start in relation to the Ukraine crisis and dealing with a new sort of Russia? This is undoubtedly the most important 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 summit since 1994, when NATO took a decision to enlarge, and it's the first summit in Britain since 1990. So it's the it's the first uh, NATO summit uh, in the UK since the Cold War.
0: Mm. Uh, And Christopher EU connection. Catherine Ashton, the EU foreign minister, being replaced. Why and who do you think? will replace her.
3: Yeah, well, um, just one point on, on, on the Cardiff meeting or the Newport meeting, it's in the margins. Don't forget, it's the margins that do That's where so, the deals much, are done. so much business. They're not just flocking news cars to each other. This is... Or, you <laughs> I, know, I, 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 I mean that in political terms. <laughs> Catherine Ashton has been around for some time as the EU Foreign Affairs Commissioner. It's her time's come to the end. I think she's been reasonably successful, although there are no sort of stars around her name, because don't forget what he's, she's been doing. She's been working with two very, very professional uh, people. uh, Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Minister, and Kerry, the United States Secretary of State. Um, You've got to operate at that level. You've got to keep going. So when they're looking for somebody else, and they'll make that decision, not at NATO. They make that decision, of course, at an EU EU summit uh, on Saturday, I think it is. um, They'll be looking at people with lots of experience. One must be the Swedish Former Swedish Prime Minister uh, Carl Bildt, although he's an outsider, um, Radek um, uh, Sikorski, the Polish Poland- Polish Foreign Minister, good 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 news. A lot of money, including the Germans. Merkel, uh, Chancellor Merkel, is uh, going for the Italian uh, Federica uh, Mogherini, who is, for the past six months has been. I don't know, she's, she's been sort of foreign minister, but she hasn't got what I'm talking about that Catherine Ashton didn't have to start with, and that's the ability to work alongside, with, and offer something to big hitters like Kerry and Lavrov. So I might just put some money on uh, Mrs. Uh, Gogieva from, from the Bulgarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, didn't want another, if you didn't want another woman in the job, and uh, uh, in the EU, at the moment, of course, John, uh, Claude uh, Juncker... The, the new president uh, is saying we've got to have more women in the job. Really? Uh, I might go for either the the, the poll or a, a well outsider. I'd like to go for Carl Bilt. I mean, you can get Even in in wheelchair. a better
0: shop or something, Christopher, here?
3: Do I run one?
0: <laughs> you sound like you do. <laughs> no, I,
3: I, I, I do pass one on my Chris, way home. Christopher
0: yeah. Lee, the bookie's favourite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor Clark, just uh, elsewhere at the moment, um, let's just talk briefly about uh, Gaza. Not fixed this week, but a prolonged ceasefire. Um, why and what does everyone want out of this exactly?
2: Because both sides have arrived at a point where uh, they know that they're failing. I mean, this whole crisis arose out of weakness on both sides. Netanyahu's weakness in Israel, Israeli prime minister, who couldn't hold off the, the hardliners in his government, who were determined that they had to be seen to do something. And equally, the Hamas leaders and the whole leadership, very diverse leadership of Hamas, who weren't really able to deliver on their own promises they, if they sign a, a peace deal, they're not able really to deliver it and guarantee that rockets won't be fired at, at Israel. So after 50 days uh, now, this, this crisis has reached a point where both sides are somewhat exhausted. A lot of damage has been done to Hamas in, in physical terms, but a great deal more damage has been done to Israel in political terms. And Hamas think that they have the upper hand psychologically uh, in this case. But nobody knows where to go next. This crisis you know, did not have mm. a strategic aim on either side. They do, neither side know what to do next.
0: Christopher, what do you think will happen next? Um,
3: just, just a small point, Hamas. It's, the, it's an Ar- Arabic acronym. It means Islamic Resistant Movement, Hamas, um, which tells you everything. It is Arab resistance. This has been going on really since the first Intifada. The first Palestinian uprising against uh, Israel, nineteen eighty-seven, goes back that far. It goes through loads of elections, two thousand five elections as well, and more recently, <coughs> excuse me, and more recently the Hamas was um, in a, in, a, in a big election and it got its legitimacy in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve. So it believes it should be there. The other thing we might remember about Hamas, it may be a tin pot organization as some would see it, but it's got tremendous sustainability, isn't it, Mike? It is fantastic. It is mm. still flying rockets. But what they want in the long term, they will not get. Israel says, Hamas, you must give up your weapons. Uh, Gaza, uh, or Hamas says to Israel, you must give us a, a, a port, an airport. Well, who wants planes flying out uh, of, of Gaza? They will not happen. And so this is a truce. Mm. This is a truce. This is this is this will never be a treaty that can be anything anything but a truce, not not a peace treaty.
0: Uh, now let's move on to to a momentous moment for the Royal Navy. At last, HMS Illustrious has been decommissioned. The aircraft carrier paid off in Portsmouth today after 32 years in the Navy. She'll be preserved for the nation, and is likely to become a tourist attraction. BFBS reporter Jeff Mead was on board earlier and spoke to Lieutenant Richard Turrell, the aircraft control room officer. Jeff asked him about his hope for the ship's future
5: the government support her being uh, kept as a living museum um so that is exactly what i'd love to see you know to have the ability to bring your grandchildren on board in the future and show them where you worked where you lived where you slept um, it's just a wonderful opportunity um, and to see the last of class um you know she's the only one left alcohol and invincible have gone unfortunately um, to see her kept as, as a history of the cvs would be fantastic
1: now, I know, you know, traditionally seafarers get, get quite sentimental about their ships, but what has she been like to, to live aboard?
3: If you like, what's her character?
5: A fantastic ship. Um, she's comfortable, within reason. Uh, she offers so much. Um, you know, the, the flexibility we have, whether we're at a war footing, you know, fighting Sierra Leone or putting uh, special forces ashore in Afghanistan, uh, or in the Philippines, you know, providing disaster relief. You know, she's just a flexible ship, and she's done very well. What about the future? Um, for your, f- We've talked about the future for the ship. What about for those who serve aboard her? Uh, we all move on to new jobs. Uh, some will stay, as I will, uh, with the ship till January, uh, just to decommission her, you know, make the final uh, commitments inside, uh, taking bits of kit out of service. And then uh, we all move on to new positions.
0: Lieutenant Richard Turrell talking to Jeff Mead. there. Uh, Christopher, will there be a tear in your eye? Is there?
3: Um is there ever Jeremiah <laughs> <laughs> uh, for for velocity, Yeah, of course. It's, it's, I mean, what's particularly interesting about ships? Mm. I think people do are moved by a ship by her name, even if they've never seen it. You know, big names like Ark Royal, uh, the Daring class. If you, if you, if your mind goes back that far. They're not in the same way, are they? They're not um, sort of get emotional about uh, RAF squadrons, even if they're famous squadrons, and they don't necessarily about... What is it about a ship that, that actually sets the, that yeah. heart going? It's since it's since victory.
0: And, and it's, it's the desire to preserve the ship at all costs, isn't it? Because we're told that this one will, will go to perhaps Hull, um, and there's also... If they can
3: afford it. That's the problem. It's not... Give me yes. a ship, no. I don't want a ship because you've got to maintain it. we uh, tried that once.
0: Uh, and, Professor Michael Clark, HMS Plymouth, a bit of a row about that ship's future because it's off for scrap in Turkey at the moment.
2: Yes, I mean, I always find that the Navy are very unsentimental about scrapping ships, and that goes back to the Napoleonic Wars and before. I mean, you know, these famous names are scrapped because other ships come along. Um, but, it, but, I mean, Christopher's right. The ships and their names, they do grab the sentiment of the public and the Navy. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's it's built in obsolescence. It's
3: partly um, because, sorry, Mike, it's partly because because these ships' names carry on, don't they? Um, they do. So uh, illustrious, I think is about the fifth illustrious there's been. The other thing that happens: in you know, all the silver on board in, in the wardroom, they get out at dinner time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the ship is decommissioned and pays off, that silver goes into the vaults in the Admiralty. Next time there's the illustrious, they get the, they say they ring up and say, "Can we have our silver back?" <laughs> That's why the name keeps going.
0: And there we must leave it. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to you Christopher and to Michael Clark. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at @BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: with Caroline, sports sport, and music, music for the British forces this is b Bf-